I'm Lauren Daly, and this is episode eight of Talk Dying to Me. A brief warning that this month's episode talks about suicide and suicidal ideation, and some people may find the content disturbing. So I'm Kathleen. I'm a gardener, and I live in South Carolina with my wife, and even my grandma lives with us. She's about to be 86. She's fabulous. She taught me everything I knew about gardening before I made it my career. She at one point had over 30 bonsais and just a whole like, I don't even know how many orchids, just like this whole like screen and porch that was like this magical oasis that I remember growing up. I have my own niche. I'm a container gardener. So I do pots and hanging baskets and window boxes, anything that is really design focused. I do also do small scale landscaping, like courtyards and that sort of thing. It's all about tight knit spaces for me. How can I squeeze in a beautiful painting of flowers that are going to grow into hopefully something even more beautiful. So with gardening, I mean, I'm always amazed at people who can garden, first of all, because I kill every (laughs) plant that I touch. Even I had this rubber plant and I bought this rubber plant. This guy's like, this is invincible. You'll never kill it. It came within an inch of its life. It's doing okay (laughs) now, but honestly, I'm so bad with plants. So what about it? Like, what about gardening and, and working with plants? What makes you passionate about it? This really gets at the core of my character. I'm going to backtrack for a minute. My parents are both rocket scientists. What? Um, Yes. (laughs) So science is a huge part of my upbringing. Everything that I was raised on had to be logical, right? The scientific method, everything had to have practicality. And I went to art school and my parents were going to lay an egg. (laughs) I thought they were going to just, I mean, it was harder to go to art school than it was to come out to them as a gay woman. But, you know, they've become very supportive. Then I went to grad school and got an art degree and I had a few solo shows and things were going really well. The creative industry just wasn't fulfilling. I wasn't being challenged enough. And all of my artistic endeavors came back to science. I was really intrigued with the environment and that sort of thing. One day we were living in LA and we packed up everything. I was miserable. She was miserable. LA was not working. We packed up everything. We quit our jobs literally and just drove across the country and moved back to Charleston, which was a wild and fun adventure. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to get any job I can to make money and figure it out from there. And I took a landscaping job and My first assignment was taking care of this huge rose garden here in Charleston, and I would spend hours just pruning roses. And I was like, what a privilege it is to be paid to just spend my days among the roses. I want to do this always. And what an art form. What an interesting art form that is to take care of a living thing, to encourage a painting to become itself almost instead of having that control. And a lot of my journey in the last few years has been about releasing control. To get to the heart of Kathleen's story, we have to backtrack about 10 years. I was 21. I had had my first love and we dated for three years and she cheated on me and we went through this horrible breakup. Every first love is a horrible breakup. This is not unique. But my reaction to that was so intense. I had, I just dove into this deep, deep depression. Very gradually, it did not happen suddenly. Very gradually, almost imperceptibly, I became very suicidal. I had lots of ideation about 
It started with hitting the quit button and like just wanting everything to go away. I think the word imperceptible is really key here because I think most people who become so dangerously suicidal, it's it's so hard to clock it progressing. One day it's hitting the quit button and the next day it's like, oh, I wish I could just sleep forever. And then the next day it's just like, well, how could I sleep forever? You know, like it's a very bizarre feeling of pain and numbness at the same time of just wanting to turn it all off at whatever cost because the emotional agony is so great. I want people out there who have never experienced this feeling to know that it is not an active process. It's very passive. I think that because the act of suicide is active, people assume the entire process is active, but it's very, very passive. It, it, it creeps into you in a way that is very, I, I mean, I'm struggling to describe it, obviously. So it's very insidious. It's very dark. And it's not like one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm suicidal. You're, you're just, you're escapist. That, I think that's the best way to describe it, of just like wanting to escape the agony. There were a few friends that I reached out to for help. There, there were definitely moments where I gave people red flags. I was not good at articulating it, but we were young. We were 21. One of those friends never talked to me again. And it's just, you know, that was so painful for so many years. But I try to remember that we don't educate our youth, which is so unfortunate because those are the people that suicidal youth are going to turn to first, their friends. I think a really interesting component to my story, though, is that, and it's very unique to lesbian relationships where your ex is your best friend. And Allison, who I had this horrible breakup with, was actually the person who knew the depth of how dangerous my mind had become. And she would drive across the state once a week to make sure that I was like, I had a full frigid groceries and I was brushing my teeth and all that sort of thing. So yes, she was definitely the most aware and the most concerned. Something I think people don't understand about suicide. You don't just wake up suicidal and then that's it. It's a, it's a spectrum and it's not a continuation. It's different every day. And there were some days where I had moments of clarity where I would tell her, I know something is wrong. I don't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a lifeline and I honestly, like, calling a hotline wasn't going to solve my problems. I do think hotlines are important. But in my mind, that wasn't the answer. Over the course of about three months, Kathleen's mental health gradually deteriorated to the point where she could barely function. There is a what's-the-point tendency with suicide. Like, what's it matter, anyways? I'm not going to go to the dentist again. You know, these kinds of thoughts. So I wasn't eating. I wasn't bathing. <laughs> I wasn't brushing my teeth. It was, you know, not a pretty look for me. I was skipping work. I sometimes didn't eat for so long that I became nauseous and vomited bile. I was definitely malnourished. And, you know, that's another component. Like when you're not taking care of your physical self, your mental health obviously gets worse. So it becomes a very slippery slope. It was summer. It was July. It was three months, and then I just couldn't take it anymore. 
Kathleen drafted a plan to end her own life. It's a plan she's never shared with anyone, not even her wife. She holds this secret close to her, an intimate part of her story that serves as a sobering reminder of how close she was to succumbing to the darkest days of her journey. Within a few hours of coming up with a plan to take her own life, Kathleen got an unexpected call that would change everything. Not a few hours later, I learned of the death of one of the happiest, funniest, dearest (laughs) friends that I had. She had hung herself with a belt. The last person on earth I ever could have imagined um, taking her own life. Honestly, the most painful part was that her sister found her and they were only nine months apart and they were thick as thieves. And just my my empathy for both Gigi, who took her own life, and Karen, who found her, just like the, the tragedy just rocked my world. Like almost a, a nauseating feeling of like, I could never do this to my family but I can't stop having these thoughts. What do we do? You know, fortunately I made it through and it, it never feels far away. It's not hard to remember those times. I can tell you exactly what the light looked like in my room when I got the call that Gigi killed herself. I remember just falling on the ground, sobbing hysterically and feeling so confused because that was supposed to be me. So it's a, it's a very, very vivid time of my life. Kathleen waded through the aftermath of her friend's suicide while still carrying the weight of her own depression, her own suicidality. She witnessed the overwhelming grief of her friend's family with a visceral awareness that it could have been her, that it almost was her that the hell they were experiencing would be the same hell her family would have endured if Gigi's death didn't force her to press pause on her own plans. I remember just thinking over and over again, it it can't be, that's not right, that can't be true. There was like this cycling of shock and disbelief and then this immediate reaction of how how could this have happened to her? Like, why didn't, why didn't she tell me? But I had not told her. And that it was just like this, this really chaotic amount of thoughts, to be honest. Like there wasn't anything linear about it. I was just, you know, honestly a little panicked. I remember feeling really panicked. Like what now? Now I can't ever tell anyone that I was suicidal because they'll think that I was, you know, selfish, you know, because everyone was, obviously heartbroken, but like angry and just, it was just utter chaos, both in my community and in my head. I actually didn't go get help for another six weeks because it was so, I was processing. Anger, frustration, resentment, those are all common expressions of grief, but they tend to be more profound in the context of suicide. And while Kathleen felt deeply for those who were closest to the loss, She also had a unique empathy for her friend, Gigi. I remember every time their mom would get so angry 
I would be like, but I, but I get it. Like, I get that pain. I completely empathized with her. And I remember justifying my own suicidal ideation against the loss of my loved ones of like, why do I have to live in agony for you? And that's obviously not the right way to think about it. (laughs) That's like my brain twisting the experience into you can't escape the agony. But I saw her pain and I just felt so sorry. We never talked about it. I just wanted to bring her back and talk to her. After the immediate shock of Gigi's death settled, Kathleen continued to struggle with debilitating depression and ongoing thoughts of suicide. She eventually came to the realization that she needed help. I can't do this by myself. I can't figure this out by myself. I something is wrong. Something up in my brain is wrong. So I think those are like the key points where I get from A to B, you know, of just really empathizing on such a extreme level with the pain and the loss that follows suicide. I was at Karen and Gigi's house with another friend and that friend knew I was really struggling and I was being very secretive about struggling because I didn't want to take away from Karen's pain and make it about me. But I turned to our mutual friend and I was like, I think it's time I need to go to the hospital. Our friend took me to the hospital and (laughs) I brought a bag (laughs) and checked in, which is really ironic because they don't let you have anything. You can't have your underwear. You can't have your socks. You can't have your hair tie. Nothing. I wore a paper scratchy apron. It was so uncomfortable. I remember how uncomfortable I was. Unfortunately, the nurses treated me like a criminal. Um, It was just like not very positive of an experience. It didn't like make me less depressed, let's say. Do you think that your experience is really like reflective of most people's experiences when they're struggling with with mental illness in terms of the healthcare system and how how they're treated? I have some pretty strong opinions about this. I it's all in how much money you have. Keep in mind Kathleen is from the US where access to healthcare depends on how much money you have or how good your insurance is, which is almost always a direct reflection of your privilege relative to the rest of society. That's so unfortunate because my friends who have had the resources to get excellent care have received excellent care. And my friends who either haven't had the resources or haven't had access to their resources out of fear, like me, I come from a middle-class family, you know, like there was no reason I couldn't get excellent care, but I was terrified to tell my parents. So I checked myself into an ER because I didn't know what else to do. I think it's a really mixed bag and I think mostly it's classist. I mean, if you don't have health insurance, what do you do? Luckily, Kathleen did have health insurance and good health insurance. She was still covered under her parents' plan at the time and recognizes that this was a huge privilege the fact that she could access care without fears that it would bankrupt her or her family. There's a psych ward at our medical university where I checked in where they have a trauma center. 
the psych ward was in overflow. So there was no option to go see anyone with like training in mental health care. Like the nurses that were dealing with me were dealing with gunshot wounds and stuff. I was like, to be honest, just a pain. Like poor little white girl who's sad. I'm sure that's what they thought. So they, you know, put me in a room with five other people and the person to my right was handcuffed to his bed and the woman to my left was handcuffed to her bed to prevent them from hurting themselves. They were clearly in like much worse state than me. And that was also traumatizing and made me feel like guilt too of just like, what do I need to be here for? We all shared one TV where the Cosby show was playing of all things. And you couldn't even hear the the characters. It was just like the laugh track. It was so annoying. I remember being like, God, I wish I'd shut that off. I just want to sleep. It wasn't until 4 a.m. that like a doctor like paid any attention to me. And he was like, why are you here? And I was like, I went through a breakup and I'm really sad. I know that sounds dumb, but like I, I, I'm like really suicidal. I don't, I don't really know what's going on. I don't, I don't, I don't really know why I'm here. Like I shouldn't be here for a breakup. Like I knew that. And he prescribed me this little blue pill and man, did that pill feel good. <laughs> so I literally wanted to jump on the bed. I was so happy. And I remember being like, great, I'll call my dad. I'll tell him to pick me up. Everything's fine. And we'll just go on our merry way and go about our lives. Because <laughs> I have this little blue pill now. Um, I don't know why I remember this so vividly, but I remember being like, why does the hospital have this black chunky corded phone? I don't know why, but like there was something about holding this this old phone to my ear and just being like, hey dad, like I'm in the hospital. And he was like, you know, why are you in the hospital? And I was like, well, suicidal. And just like saying it so matter of factly, because at this point I've been feeling this way for months. And he was like floored. And he was like, your, my, your mother and I are on the way. So Kathleen, who had been depressed and suicidal for months, was in the emergency department at her local university hospital because the psych ward was full, wearing a paper gown, surrounded by patients who were handcuffed to their beds, listening to the unrelenting laugh track of the Bill Cosby show. And as if by a stroke of magic, it would seem as though a little blue pill, which she can't recall the name of, put her into a surprising but welcome state of euphoria. It was very <laughs> kind of out-of-body experience because I'd taken this pill that made me feel great. And I was like, oh, good, that's gone now. <laughs> you know. Kathleen's doctor, the one who prescribed the magic little blue pill, came back a number of hours later to check on her. I remember him coming back and being like, that was a very small dose and there's like pure glee on your face. <laughs> um, and he was like, oh, okay, well, you're bipolar. For anyone who doesn't know, for the most part, bipolar people should not take antidepressants because it pushes them into mania. And that is exactly what happened to me. According to some of my friends who work in psychiatry, it's unusual for an antidepressant to push someone towards hypomania within a few short hours of taking it. But it's not impossible. It's likely that Kathleen was on the edge of an upswing in her mood as a natural progression of her bipolar disorder, and this magic little blue pill was just enough to push her into a hypomanic episode. Bipolar wasn't even in my, like, area of possibility in my mind. Just, like, not, like, couldn't fathom it. 
I'm a normal, fine young lady. You know, like, I'm just like, no, that's not possible. I was offended. I was so offended that I was like, no, you're wrong. You know, like, there's no way. His nonchalantness made it almost not believable. It was just like, oh, okay, we'll check that box. So it was, it was like my whole, like, world came crashing down. My parents were standing right there, and so they received the news the same time I did, which also was terrible for me because they're rocket scientists. So they were like, you know, okay, we're going to get you the, and here's where the class comes in. We're going to get you the best team of doctors. We're going to fix this. I remember that exact sentence coming out of their mouths. We're going to fix this. I Immediately, I was defined as a problem. And just like something that had to be solved, not a person with feelings. So, you know, my parents really struggled. They were embarrassed. They w- they never told me that, but they I, it was very obvious. They didn't tell anyone I was hospitalized. They didn't want people to know. And I just had to wait and wait for conversations to produce themselves. Well, I've always been very close to my parents, but I grew up under the mantra, walk it off. And they meant that lovingly, be strong, but they didn't battle with mental health. So, you know, my mom told me two days ago, you need to be tougher. It's just gonna be something she'll always tell me. And I have to have that patience with her of just like, this is her saying she loves me. And that's been really hard to learn. But she also has been incredibly supportive as has my dad. None of my friends or family will be perfect, but they love me so much and they don't see me any differently. They just want me to be happy. Mom and dad, I know you're probably gonna listen to this, but like, we've come a long way. (laughs) So it was so painful from all these different angles of just like, and I, I, I thought that was gonna be the hardest part. So... Spoiler alert, it wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part would come in the time between her diagnosis and finding stability, which for Kathleen, like many people struggling with serious mental health issues, took a long, long time. Kathleen left the hospital with her parents, and she felt like the hospital couldn't get rid of her quickly enough. They gave her the impression that her issues weren't important, even though she had just received the most life-altering news. They said because I checked myself in on my own free will, I could leave on my own free will. Wow. Yeah. So, Did they do a risk assessment? Like, do you felt like they really assessed your risk for safety? 100% no. I mean, they were, like, way over capacity. And they were like, you leave with your parents, we don't care. I, they didn't say we don't care, but it, it was just, like, that whole vibe of, like, we have bigger fish to fry. I wish I could sit here on my Canadian high horse and say that the undervaluing of mental health is an American issue, but we all know that's not true. Canada struggles with the same systemic undervaluing of mental health care in our country, and it would be a lie to tell ourselves otherwise. After Kathleen was discharged home with her parents, they immediately drafted a letter to the dean at her college, who granted her a two-week leave of absence and they began to search for the best psychiatrist and the best psychotherapist. Kathleen, with the support of her family, became committed to getting well. 
And this is where someone who isn't Kathleen, who isn't a white, middle-class American woman, might fall through the cracks, might get lost to follow-up, might have no choice but to go to work rather than taking two weeks off to tend to a mental health crisis, might have to decide between feeding her kids or paying for her medication, and forget about top-rated psychiatrists or therapy, or perhaps even the support of a family or friends. Kathleen's privilege in the context of her bipolar disorder is not lost on her, but it also doesn't diminish the personal struggles she faced in the aftermath of her diagnosis and the struggles she continues to face living with this illness each and every day. You know, I really did feel like that night in the hospital, like my former self died and I had to be like reborn at this as this like bipolar version of myself. And I felt branded. I felt like people thought I was crazy. I felt like everyone knew. I felt like people were talking about me. Worst of all, <laughs> like classic American woman, I think it's like I felt not put together. And that was like so painful for me to just be like in a grocery store being like, I can't find what I'm looking for and I'm going to cry <laughs> and just like feeling like I just couldn't get it together. Like it was so tough. And you know, it's such a sexist thing to to talk about, but it's like true. Like that is unfortunately how we view women. But anyways, it was just like, I had to be reborn into this version of myself where I had to like, what I really mean by that is like, I had to love myself again. <laughs> and that took a long time. We went through the gamut, man. Like, <laughs> it took a year to find medications that I even responded positively to. And it took several more months after that to then find the right dosage. And this is the problem for me. And our mental health care system in America is so messed up that, like, if six months into that, journey to find meds, I just didn't go to my appointment anymore, I would just drop through the system. There is no catching people with a safety net. So I had to commit myself to do the work and to say, okay, this med makes me feel like I'm tranquilized. Guess I'm going back to the doctor. This med makes me feel like I am a jitterbug. Guess I'm going back to the doctor. And I just like had to commit to like, and like, I don't know, like if what happened to Gigi hadn't happened, like, would I have fought that battle so hard? Yeah, it just, it's very complicated. Having structure was so important. And Allison, my ex-girlfriend, she sometimes noticed things with these new meds that I didn't. And we became very good friends. And she would be like, okay, whatever you're taking right now is not working for you. And I wouldn't even have known. It's not like Kathleen could just push pause on her life for the year and a half it took her to figure out which meds would help control her bipolar symptoms. She still had to get shit done. She still had to pay her bills and go to the grocery store and get an oil change, file her taxes, and all of the little things that are part of normal adulting. But the thing is, none of these things felt little to Kathleen. Kathleen felt everything in big ways, in big, debilitating ways. I was just, like, going about life. Like, I was having to live my life. And, like, things would knock me down. Like, you know, car breaks down. And, like, 
now that I'm having all these bipolar symptoms, like everything feels so huge. And so I just would fall down again because I just was feeling everything so huge. I laughed too loudly. I cried too hard. I cried in the grocery store. I would get really manic and stay up for days. And then I would crash. Kathleen has bipolar 2 disorder, which means that she doesn't have full-blown manic episodes, but rather hypomania, which is a sustained state of elevated or irritable mood that's less severe than full-blown mania, but still significantly impacts quality of life. This is different from bipolar 1 disorder, which cycles between depression and more intense episodes of mania. I never experienced anything that made me, like, bipolar type 1, sometimes they can't totally discern reality in their mania, but I could. But I was just like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to the dark room until, like, 5 in the morning, or I guess I'm going to stay up working on this video project. You know, I was an art student, so I was just, like, throw myself into my work, which to be honest, the mania artwork was never good. (laughs) So, I mean, what goes up must come down. For every bipolar person that I've talked to, when you get a really high high, a really low low is coming. I would go into these super depressed periods. I call them dips because, you know, we, we think about like a like a graph of a wave. So I would go into these really intense dips and then I would just also have to be like, okay, I just, it's probably only going to last three days, you know, like just have to get through it and just like pick some of my favorite movies that I want to watch or really dive into a book or, you know, just like do whatever it takes to like, you know, get through it. And like, sometimes when I was manic, if I like, especially before I had like good medication going, I would go to the grocery store and like, cook a bunch of meals because I knew that like in three days I would not want to (laughs) eat or cook rather. So it was just like prepping for the downfall. So there was always this like lingering doom, you know. It took a number of years after finding a medication and dose that worked for her before Kathleen felt equipped to anticipate and lean into the ebbs and flows of her bipolar disorder. I really didn't, like, master that until about year four. It was definitely something I always had in my mind of, like, man, if I could just see this coming. And I I really didn't figure out until year four that, like, the swings lasted three or four days and that sort of thing. I often talk about riding the wave, not fighting the current. You know, as a bipolar person, I'm going to have my highs and lows. That's just inherently part of my body. That's part of my rhythm. And I finally figured out in like year four that like just fighting the rip current just made me exhausted and I never won I never won so just like allowing my manic episodes and my depressive episodes to fuel something instead of being at the mercy of them and while it may seem like riding the waves of her mental illness is a passive process it's anything but It's incredibly active, and it requires a lot of mindful energy. And while keeping tabs on your mood and constantly managing your emotional response to normal, everyday life is not rocket science, in many ways, it's harder. And I tracked things. Like, 
I really have to give it to my parents for like raising me on the scientific method because like I had a mood journal. I was like tracking when I forgot my meds. I was tracking all sorts of stuff. And I know that's not normal. And I would not expect like any other person who is like going through bipolar disorder to do that. But it does really help if you want to get into it. (laughs) It sounds like a full-time job. It really is. Yeah. I wake up every morning and I'm like, okay, how's my mood? That's like the first thing I think about. Like, how am I feeling right now? Like, that's going to dictate what today looks like. Some days I'm not good. And the key is knowing that you're not good and taking care of yourself because you're not good. And other days I'm good so that I can be good for other people, you know? Like, so I can be a support for my wife, so I can be support for my grandma. Kathleen's bipolar disorder is very stable these days, just about as stable as it gets. But her day-to-day life has categorically changed. Even though her bipolar symptoms are well-managed with treatment, it's not like it just goes away. Kathleen is committed to a life with her bipolar disorder, and sometimes her experience can feel incredibly isolating. I want to know more bipolar people because I feel intensity all the time. It's just like the constant act of feeling. And I just, I feel not, I, lonely is a sad word. I don't think of it as sad, but I just, I am a little lonely and like my friends can be there for me till they're blue in the face, but they're never gonna feel what I'm feeling. They're never gonna really know that like, you know, these small acts of everyday life are really big. And then the big things that happen are like internal explosions, you know, it's just like, and I've learned to manage that and like put on a good face and be confident in it. But I I just want to talk to people about it who experience it too. It's been nearly 10 years since Kathleen was diagnosed with bipolar disorder since she was struggling to survive the darkest moments of her life. 10 years since she was stopped in her tracks before taking her own life after learning that one of her best friends died by suicide. But she never stops thinking about that time in her life and she likely never will. I still feel survivor's guilt. I wonder often if I had taken my own life would Gigi be alive today? I feel guilty that because she took her own life, I am alive today. It's very painful. It is a weight. It's very heavy on me. I have a little rock that I made when Gigi took her life that has her name painted on it. And I carry it with me sometimes when I'm feeling that really strongly of just being like, never again. Like, I will not allow myself to get that bad. I will seek help before it gets that bad because I hesitate to say this, but like, I don't want her lost life to be in vain almost. Like, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I just, it's very sad. It's very sad. This entire experience, the death of a dear friend, the rebirth of herself and a new way of living with a mental illness, it's all very complicated. It's enveloped in grief, and like most experiences of grief, Kathleen's story is upheld within the tension between the worst things that have happened to her and some of the best things that have happened to her. 
It exists within the complex reality that the most painful parts of her history were the catalyst towards a life full of love, empathy, and meaning. I don't know how to tell people this sometimes, but I feel like I'm a better version of myself now. You know, the onset of bipolar symptoms in women is typically ages, what, like 20 to 24 or something like that. And that very much happened for me. And I felt like I had personality changes, but between the behavioral practices and taking my meds and going to therapy, I have like become this version of myself that's like, like way better. (laughs) Um, I'm more emotionally intelligent. I'm more empathetic. I am stronger. I like challenges. I, you know, I feel more adult. I feel like I'm kick ass and I, I'm really grateful for that. You know, I definitely have my days where, I mean, people at my last job found out that I was bipolar and it was like, oh, you know, like, oh, Kathleen's bipolar. And I'm like, oh my God, guys, get over it. Like, whatever. Like, yeah, Joe Schmo over there is diabetic. Who cares? And just like getting to that point of confidence. And I want to say this one more time. Like, sometimes I fake it. Like, I have to like just pull up my bootstraps sometimes and just like, be strong to get strong. In many ways, Kathleen's work as a gardener can serve as a metaphor for her life, especially over the last several years. Kathleen dedicates her time tending to something she can't fully control. She's learned how to optimize the conditions, manage the variables that can be managed, to support a thing to grow into the best, most vibrant version of itself. Kathleen continues to grow and flourish as she gets back to loving herself, a whole person living with bipolar disorder. And she's learned more than a few things on this journey, things she thinks might help others who are struggling. Patience all around with yourself, with your loved ones. And this is coming from the least patient person I know. Um, me. I had to learn to be patient with the person I didn't like, and that was me. And just giving yourself time to regulate, giving yourself time to know what your body's going to do next. And then giving your family members time because they're going to grieve too. Tell someone, tell anyone close to you, just tell one person that you trust and you feel will be empathetic. And you know, go from there, start a conversation. I think it's really, really important for people to talk about this. You know, if Gigi and I had talked about this, she would probably still be here. I would want that person to know that they are super, super loved and that they are not alone, as alone as it feels. And I don't want to invalidate the loneliness, but they are not alone. Years after Kathleen was struck with intrusive thoughts of ending her own life, she presented her final thesis for art school called Are You Dying in the Desert? In a way, it was an artistic expression of her journey from once desiring death to learning to live again, to learning to love herself again, and to consider death from this newfound perspective, one that is grounded in the beauty of living. My graduate school art thesis was all about what I thought it would be like to die in the desert. This was 2017, several years after I recovered from being suicidal. 
This piece of art danced with a dark magic I saw in the desert as if it were a metaphor for death who once called to me like this mesmerizing siren or a bright light that I couldn't look away from. While I no longer idolize death, I still imagine life's final moments could be quite beautiful. While making this piece of art, I skirted that line of what it felt like to once crave death and what it was like to have a new, renewed fear of it. And one day I realized the work was not really about dying at all. My fascination with death is actually about living. It's about finding beauty in life until the last breath, whenever that moment comes. That's it for this month's episode of Talk Dying to Me. A very heartfelt thank you to Kathleen Saunders for reaching out to us and sharing her story. Kathleen continues to live in Charleston, South Carolina with her wife, Kayla, and she recently started a new gardening business. She and Kayla are working on family planning and are hoping to get pregnant in the near future. She's feeling better than ever these days, and we wish her and Kayla all the best on this super exciting next chapter of their lives. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. The theme music is by Kevin McLeod, our cover art is by Wiki Turton, and the post-production work of this episode was done by the talented team at Resonate Recordings. Thanks for listening.